Every year, one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts for up to 89% off USPS and UPS services, so your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. It's like your own personal post office. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com code PROGRAM. Welcome to On the Middle East, the podcast of the award-winning media service, El Monitor, where each week we talk with the decision makers and thought leaders who are making the news and shaping the trends in the Middle East. I'm Andrew Parasoliti, president of El Monitor, and this week our guest is Dr. Abdulaziz El Sagar, chairman and founder of the Gulf Research Center. Dr. El Sagar specializes in international politics and regional security issues pertaining to the Gulf region. He has authored and edited numerous publications and has many articles in local and international newspapers related to Gulf affairs. He is also the editor of ARA, a monthly Arabic language magazine focused on the Gulf and editor-in-chief as well of the Gulf Yearbook. Dr. Sagar holds a PhD in politics and international relations from Lancaster University in the UK. Dr. Abdulaziz and I will be taking stock of the latest developments in the region, the flurry of diplomacy and meetings, the pause in the Iran nuclear talks, US Secretary of State Antony Blinken's regional tour, the violence in Israel, the prospects for US-Saudi relations, and more. My conversation with Dr. Abdulaziz Al-Sagar begins now. Dr. Abdulaziz Al-Sagar, welcome to On the Middle East. Thank you very much. Welcome, and I'm glad to be with you today. Glad to have you with us today. Abdulaziz, you and I were at the Doha Forum last week, and as there always is, there was a lot of diplomatic flurry around the forum. And there was also the Aqaba Summit hosted by King Abdullah, the Abraham Accord Ministerial Summit in Israel, and U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken's regional tour. Meanwhile, the talks on the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the JCPOA, or Iran nuclear deal, seem to have stalled apparently over whether the United States will lift the designation on the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, IRGC, as a terrorist group. Help us understand the recent diplomatic flurries in the region, especially as it relates to Iran, and how you see the impact of the JCPOA, or of no JCPOA, if there's not a deal, on regional security. Thank you very much for the complicated and tough question, but I'll be glad to try to answer it uh, from my point of view. Um, to start with, when the JCPOA was signed in 2015, Saudi Arabia and the rest of the Gulf country, they were not consulted. They were not part of it and they were not consulted for any detail, despite of their own concern at that time, which basically has to do with the enrichment, number of centrifuges, the period of time, 10 to 15 years is nothing, um, you know, as far as they're concerned. But they, because giving their special relation between the United States and the Gulf country, they have accepted it. And even at that time, if you all remember, King Salman did visit Washington during the time of President Obama. 
and gave the endorsement for the JCPOA on the basis that we hope that this will change the attitude and behavior of Iran toward uh, the region, you know, since they will have their money back and they will be able uh, to export their oil and, uh, you know, to normalize the relation with them. Unfortunately, what we have seen is the other side. We have seen that Iran uh, uh, interpret the JCPOA 2015 is licensed to expand their activity and to do much more interventionist policy, expansionist using the sectarianism as dimension in all the Arab state country where they are involved, whether it's Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, Yemen, creating cells in the uh, Gulf between Bahrain, Kuwait, and Saudi Arabia. So it, it was not really an agreement where it made Iran behave better toward the region and stopping their interventions policy. Now, after the President Trump decided to withdraw from it and then the renegotiation taking place after President Biden came into the office, I think uh, we are concerned of the two outcome. Is the outcome gonna be uh, another a license for Iran to expand because the U.S. is showing a great desperation of expanding, uh, of, of signing the deal and getting it uh, over with because they need to be free for the uh, uh, real power, uh, you know, struggle with the Russia and then later on with China and they just want to get Iran off the way for them or uh, that's going to, to, uh, to uh, you know, change and make Iran uh, behave better this time and work with an inclusive uh, security architecture in the region and be closer and then stop a lot of the things that used to annoy. What surprised us that the Iranian came up with the uh, uh, request of delisting the Iranian Revolution Guard. And the Iranian Revolution Guard was never part of the JCPOA. It was part of the Terrorism uh, Act and issues. And since if the US does listen to their request and accepted it, which it looks like they might accept it, then uh, from our point of view, basically they are going to relicense, they're going to give uh, legitimacy to the Iranian Revolution Guard this way by delisting them and allow them to expand. And we know that without the approval of the Iranian Revolution Guards, there will be no deal uh, in Vienna. So that's one of the concerns. If they are going to look at it from that angle, uh, and they're going to consider uh, uh, you know, delisting uh, the Revolution Guard as an additional license for expansion, that will be of a great concern to us. But if they're not going to uh, you know, uh, act in that way, then what are the other you know, scenarios or possibility. One scenario, some people says that Iran, if they don't get a deal, then they will become more aggressive in the region and we're going to see much more attack like what they did to the uh, Saudi critical oil facility in, in uh, uh, you know, before in September, 2019, encouraging the Houthi to do more uh, attack on Saudi Arabia like what we have seen in March, 2022. So we have the two scenario, one scenario says, Yes, they might behave better and they might feel, uh, you know, focus on their domestic, which we hope that should be the scenario that will take place. And we hope the U.S. exert much more pressure, uh, uh, you know, for them that they go into that direction. Or we may see the scenario that there is no deal, become more aggressive, and then we will do so. In both cases, we are concerned because 
if they insist to delist uh, the uh, Iranian Revolution Guard as part of the deal, why they did not accept to take in account all our concern from the region? You know, we have a set of requests to the US and to the B5 plus one about all our uh, you know, agenda that we thought they need to take it in account, which it has not been. We have been promised that there will be a pressure to look into that one. So, uh, you know, uh, we are still waiting uh, when the deal uh, will be announced, whether by signing a deal or calling it off, and we will see what's the outcome out of that one. But in the end, I think if the US and the B5 plus one did not realize that this was not an excellent deal, if it was an excellent deal, airtight, waterproof, as they call it, they would not have been able to, 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 to go to 60% enrichment and to increase and change the type of uh, centrifuge they are using, which has a bigger and larger capability than, than the, uh, you know, the original one that they have accepted, the IR2 equipment there. What about the prospects for the Baghdad-mediated Iran-Saudi talks? And do you see any possibility for traction for peace talks in Yemen especially if there is an Iran nuclear deal? Okay. Uh, let's say that, uh, you know, the four talk round talk that has been between Saudi and Iran, primarily it was focusing in security and intelligence matter. The uh, official information that was published uh, through different resources that Saudi wanted to bring up the issue of Yemen as number one, which basically we're saying hands off out of Yemen, do not involve, do not support, do not send ballistics missile to them and so. While the Iranian would like to normalize the relation first and then start any talk. And Saudi, they feel, uh, uh, you know, not great since the, the uh, uh, 2016, the burning of the embassy and the consulate in Mashhad, Iran did not really cooperate and they did not uh, do what they promised that they will do. So there is a mistrust situation here. This talk primarily was focusing on, on security issue. It was not really a political. There was supposed to be the fifth round in Baghdad almost uh, the last, two weeks ago, but it did not take place, I think, because the Iranian, they were hoping first to get the JCPOA and then move toward uh, you know, a fifth round. And again, we all were waiting to see what new government uh, you know, will, will be in Baghdad and, and how they are encouraged and what they would say with regard to the uh, Saudi-Iran talk. But when it comes to Yemen, I have to say the following, that Saudi, in principle, they should not and they will not you know, uh, uh, discuss with the Iranian the, uh, the issue in Yemen. Because if you discuss with them, basically you are legitimizing their uh, intervention. Saudi have called, I mean, through the coalition, through the GCC secretariat have called for a consultative and a meeting between all the different Yemeni party in Riyadh. Unfortunately, until today, the Houthi did not participate, but it's still, it's much easier to have the direct talk with the Yemeni party, including the Houthi uh, through the coalition or through the uh, you know, different Yemeni uh, uh, party, rather than having it with Iran. Iran in the past seven years, all what they did is they encouraged the aggression against Saudi Arabia by supplying them with more than 500 ballistics missile, with giving them the training on the drone, increasing their capability, uh, make sure that their accuracy uh, of firing you know, power is there. So uh, how come uh, after all of this, and also uh, the the um, the mines, the uh, 
you know, the fast boats that diffuse in the maritime mines also. All the, all the attack that the Houthi, they were not trained to be on that war and they were never really an official army. But all of this came through the Iranian Revolution Guard. In fact, it is funny, the only country, I mean, somebody was asking me uh, the other day, uh, what did you get after seven years of war? I said, at least we made sure that they don't occupy the whole country in, in Yemen, the Houthi. And there is no official recognition you know, for them uh, worldwide with the exception of Iran because of the Yemeni ambassador, in so-called ambassador in Tehran. He is the uh, representative of Al-Quds, Faylaq Al-Quds, you know, which is part of the Iranian revolution. So I don't think uh, having JCPOA is going to encourage the Iranian to have a better talk or really be more sensible in these things. In fact, they will feel as, um, you know, they gain something, you know, they push the US to accept their terms and condition, and they pushed all the, you know, B5 plus one because they are busy with Russia and Ukraine and because they want to see, they see this as a priority. So why would they, why would they give up anything today? Let me ask one final question on Iran. Do you think that if there is a deal on the JCPOA, that that would be a benefit, an advantage to moving ahead with the Yemen peace talks? So do you think the talks would be influenced for better or worse by the conclusion of an Iran nuclear deal? I don't think I'm going to see a positive move from uh, from from the Iranian side toward Yemen. I think they feel that the, you know they're winning. Uh, you know the the uh, uh, the game, as we call it. You know they have achieved what they want to achieve with the U.S. They are in a stronger position. This is their alliances. The rest of the world did not punish them. Uh, you know for what they are, uh, what the Houthi is doing, or what support they provided to the Houthi. So why would they change? Why would they be Mr. Nice Guy now and try to stop their support or stop, uh, you know, stop uh, training or uh, militarizing the Houthi with the, with the weapon system that can disturb and kill innocent people in the neighborhood, not only in Saudi Arabia, but also in United Arab Emirates. And also we have seen it in the maritime issue and the danger for the uh, uh, free movement of vessels on the in the water in the state of uh, on the Gulf, uh, you know, uh, uh, water or in the Arabian Sea. Abdulaziz, uh, there was yes. also a great deal of concern about the escalating violence in the West Bank and the terrorist attacks inside Israel, especially as Ramadan begins tomorrow and the convergence of the religious holidays in the coming months for Jews and Christians as well. Now, Secretary Blinken highlighted the need for progress toward a two-state solution while he was in Israel in the West Bank last week, and King Abdullah of Jordan seems seized of the urgency of the moment with his diplomatic activities in the last week, visiting Ramallah and hosting both Israeli President Herzog and Defense Minister Gantz. Can you put the Israeli-Palestinian issue for us in regional context? How is this playing out and what does it mean for those states, including Israel, possibly the UAE, that might prefer to focus on Iran and other issues and trends? 
you know, we have the two sides of the story. The Israeli consider this meeting as more of an alliances. They consider it as it's going to be one of series of meetings is more periodical. It's going to be, they did approach it slightly different than what we heard from the Egyptian foreign ministers and the others. You know, the four countries, Morocco, um, Egypt, United Arab Emirates, Israel, and then the participation of, uh, you know, the uh, US uh, State Secretary Blinken, uh, you know, they want Israel, they wanted to use that as, as anti-Iran also number one, but they did not achieve that one. I think because uh, Secretary Blinken knows that the US is putting a lot of effort to get JCPOA in agreement and to try to resolve the issue with Iran. So he cannot endorse uh, you know, this meeting to be anti-Iran uh, the way how the Israeli you know, uh, you know, look at that. But at the same time, I think when it comes to the, uh, you know, uh, today, yes, we have three type of different, you know, pressure. Uh, uh, the Arab-Israeli uh, or, or the Palestinian-Israeli conflict has become lower on the agenda because of the Ukraine-Russia issues. Uh, the nuclear fire, I mean, the nuclear negotiation JCPOA in Vienna is another reason. And third, of course, is the increase of the incidents in Israel and the killing of the uh, different, uh, you know, incident that took place. So all of that, if you put it together, it shows that, yes, it is important. This is why Secretary Blinken did meet with uh, Mahmoud Abbas in the Palestinian Authority. He still talk about the two-state solution and he still, but the subject did not receive much pressure, neither from the, the U.S., uh, toward Israel, nor from the Arab countries in total because of the current situation that everybody is talking about. But at the same time, maybe I'd like to emphasize, and I don't think the Israeli by having the Ibrahim Accord and the agreement with UAE and Bahrain and Morocco, that they do intend to go and defend those countries against any external aggression. The Israeli historically, they will go after the threat that really, uh, you know, being perceived by them even in third territory and try to attack it. And we have seen this on the Iraqi nuclear file. We have seen this in Iran in certain uh, location. We have seen it, you know, in different, in Syria. We have seen it in the PLO in Tunis. So, they, but they will not go as a full force, you know, to other country and try to defend an external threat to those country whom they are signing with them. So everybody should make no mistake, we're not going to see Israeli defending those countries. Maybe there will be sharing of intelligence, maybe there will be a security collaboration in terms of information, maybe some training, but I don't think that physically we are going to see a strong Israeli presence. Back to the issue of the two-state solution. Yes, this is what Saudi Arabia have proposed since 2002, and uh, still what we have heard from the Saudi Crown Prince in his last interview with the Atlantic uh, magazine, he said, you know, if the Palestinian and the Israeli resolve their problem, we can have an alliances with, well, with Israel. Here, we're not talking about uh, alliances that a traditional or conventional one. I think it can be political and strategic alliances because defining the threat to the region, if we have if they resolve the problem with the Palestinian, if they want to live in peace, and if they are part of the region and there is a threat to the region, then we can see a collaboration uh, to, to, you know, from both sides to stop external aggression against the region.
at the Doha Forum, the Russia-Ukraine war was, of course, a large part of the discussion. There seemed to me an uneasiness about the war. There was, of course, uniform condemnation of the attack on Ukraine by Russia, but there also seemed a wariness about the implications for the region of what a decades-long new battle for freedom, as President Biden described it, and the unprecedented sanctions on Russia might mean for the Middle East, especially the countries that are balancing their relations with the United States, Russia, and of course, China. And in addition, the UN just this week said Yemen, Lebanon, and Egypt faced a food catastrophe because of the war, given the disruption of wheat and other imports. How do you see the Russia-Ukraine war playing out in the region, including how states are um, assessing what comes next in terms of U.S. diplomacy and, and what it means for the, the states themselves? Okay. Um, I mean, to, as a principle, as a matter of principle, definitely all the Gulf countries, including Saudi Arabia, are against any extended aggression against any country. We have suffered from that during the Iran invasion of Kuwait. We have never accepted or endorsed that by any means. So that's as a basic principle. But at the same time, what, what Putin was demanding from Ukraine, similar to what we want to, if you know, from Yemen, you know, in Saudi Arabia, basically you want to have a good neighborhood, an administration that he can deal with, and disarmament that there should be no military capability that can represent a threat. He has 2,000 kilo border with the Ukraine and a 500 kilo uh, uh, sea border. So that makes it a bit crucial for them. But at the same time, we are not by any means, this is why all the Gulf country uh, on the uh, UN vote, we did vote for the non-aggression, of course, against the Ukraine. At the same time, strategically is not the same importance to us. Ukraine is not has no border like Iraq or Yemen to us in the Gulf region here. So it's not equally, uh, you know, uh, in, in terms of a strategic threat, you know, for us. At the same time, the Ukraine crisis, unfortunately, came during the time where there is, a, I would call it a bit of a turbulence in the relation between the Gulf country and the US. And there is a lot of pressure on that uh, side. Uh, so meanwhile, the Gulf country are trying to show some sort of resistant a little bit, I would call it, a, you know, a, a little resistant against the US pressure that traditionally they would have accepted many of the US, uh, you know, wish list and, and, and go for it. But at the same time now, I think we are start seeing, you know, not willing to be out of the OBIC plus or not to destroy that one. They're, you know, they wanted to, they called everybody to, uh, they don't want to condemn officially uh, Russia, uh, you know, at the same time, they still believe, uh, you know, having, um, you know, a single, uh, or let's say, uh, uh, hegemony worldwide might be not the most ideal situation. They have anticipated that we are going back to the Cold War era, but they were all hoping that even if we go back to a Cold War era, that they should be both at least dealing uh, on the same level between the old Soviet Union and the United States on the um, 86, 87, that sort of level of relation that exists, but not the way that we have seen it, uh, you know, at this stage. But, uh, you know, meanwhile, we understand the pressure that, you know, is going to be on the uh, commodity prices, as we have seen the skyrocketing on the prices. Um, but it's still, you know, that thing, we have seen it at a different period of time, I'm sure, 
countries will help each other in this part of the world to offer, uh, um, you know, come the the difficulties also on the on the uh, uh, you know commodity prices. But let me set the stage correct here. We understand our relation with the United States is the most important relation, and we understand that aggression is not acceptable. But at the same time, we wish to see a much more constructive engagement by the European and the US in supporting the Russian and the Ukrainian to come into a better political uh, dialogue and a better political you know, decision. So uh, instead of continuing the current situation that leads only to uh, a difficult economic situation, lead to uh, <coughs> you know, more, more difficult. At the same time, the Gulf countries, by the way, they did look at uh, to the three country position. How did they maintain their neutrality? China, India, Turkey. So they're not the only one trying to maintain semi-neutral position, I would call it. And although we understand that if it go, if the situation continue and go further, maybe the neutral position not an option to exercise, in my opinion, because then we're going to see. Uh, you know, alliances, and we're going to see the, the, the whole situation. But again, you know, we hope to see that uh, crisis, uh, you know, overcome and, uh, uh, you know, not, not, not the same impact. Abdulaziz, last question. I would like to ask you about developments in U.S.-Saudi relations. Karen House has a piece today in the Wall Street Journal, and she writes that it's time for Washington and Riyadh to put aside grievances and bury the hatchet. How do you see the trends in U.S.-Saudi bilateral ties? And can they get better in the coming months and years, especially given the challenges in the international and regional environment? OK, in, in, in my personal opinion, what we are seeing today, the uh, you know, President Biden administration approach to the uh, Saudi-U.S. relation, it's a continuation of what have President Obama started. And also, by the way, it did continue during uh, President Trump time. So, you know, I, I still consider it, it's, a, uh, it's, it's not an administration policy, it's a state policy, uh, which we are very concerned to see consistency there between uh, Obama, Trump, and Biden. Biden maybe have used a different approach than Trump. Trump made us paid heavily and uh, you know, sign a lot of you know, contract. But in reality, the two pillars on the relation, which is very important, which is guarantee and defending, uh, we see that the guarantee, they talk about it, but implementation is quite weak. And we see on the defensive side, we need the two. We need somebody to defend in case if we are subjected to an external uh, aggression or intervention or attack. And also we need to be equipped with the proper equipment uh, in terms of the defensive equipment that we're going to need uh, you know, to, to defend ourselves. If these two are not available, then basically you're pushing the region and Saudi Arabia in particular to look at alternative. Now, I would still say alternative is not easy because you know, Russia is a producer of a raw material. Like us, they have oil, gas, uh, uh, mineral, uh, you know, and, and our, our military is more of a Western military doctrine rather than the Eastern. So we are not trained or equipped, you know, for that one. And we don't consider that as an alternative. At the same time, China, we have a huge, uh, you know, uh, 
buyer and seller relation, China still import about 35% of their energy uh, from the Gulf country, 1.7 million barrel, at least from Saudi Arabia. So still it's a buyer and seller and not a strategic. So what we have seen is a change on the US approach towards Saudi Arabia. At the same time, there is a Saudi resistant against that one. And the Saudi resistant, you know, they have to express themselves. They no longer keep quiet and tolerate what, you know, as it used to be before. I think we start seeing here in the new young leadership in Saudi Arabia and uh, quite a clear answer saying, no, we're not going to leave Obi Plus. No, we are not going to condemn, uh, you know, Putin for that one. We wish that both, you know, solve it amicably. No, we're not going to uh, do everything you want us, you know, to do there. So again, those are clear messages, but it's a pity to see a relation that the various vessels left the Saudi port in 1939 that today goes through this uh, turbulence, I would call it, because I still consider Saudi-US relation is a very strategic and very important, and we all have to work in resolving um, whatever problem that occurs in that one. And also, you see Saudi moving toward China a little bit, and 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 uh, you know, trying this all are clear signaling that we're no longer uh, adopting uh, an old policy that that you know we used to say, okay, we'll stay quiet, we'll adopt it, we will take it. And don't forget, twice we did listen to the U.S. and incre in increasing our oil production in the 80 to weaken the Soviet Union presence in uh, Afghanistan. And second time when Russia in 1998, when they were going to collapse and we were requested to, to decrease our oil production by more than 2 million barrels, we did it for the sake of the U.S. and to help on their policy toward Russia. But today, because there was a very clear strategic important relation, it was, as I said, the guarantor and the defender. Now there is a question in these two pillars on the relation. So where are we going to head? Are we going to see, uh, uh, you know, if, if there is a change in administration, whether another democratic leader or a Republican, is that going to continue the same approach with Saudi Arabia or is going to change? We have a lot of sensible people in the US that they know the region, they know Saudi Arabia, they know the, how important the relation between the two. They can bring a lot of uh, you know, sense to the table to agree. And then we can always uh, apply uh, you know, school of new realism, you know, make sure that we are all pragmatic on the relation and resolve the issue and, and, and go about it. Now, the difficult situation to see if the crisis in Ukraine continue, and the, uh, there's a shortage uh, in oil supply, either by the, uh, the Russian decided not to export or by the American and the European embargo, the uh, Russian energy, who's going to fill that gap, what is going to happen, how the Saudi position and the rest of the Gulf country, that you know, is a changing on the game. Uh, you know, we might see that one. Abdulaziz, thank you for your time today. I enjoyed and learned from this conversation very much, as I always do when talking thank with you. Sir. And it was great to see you in Doha. Thank you very much. Same thing. It was great to see you in Doha. And uh, thank you for the invitation today. And we'll stay in touch. And Ramadan Karim to you and, your family Karim. and all you. friends in the kingdom. Thank you. We will return after this break. Elizabeth 
Hagedorn, and I'm the State Department correspondent at El Monitor. And I'm Joe Snell. I'm El Monitor's video editor. Let's admit it, this past year has been difficult to stay on top of the news and sift through what's accurate and what's misleading. Let El Monitor help you. If you care about the Middle East and North Africa, you should consider listening to El Monitor's audio series on the Middle East with Andrew Parasoliti and Amber and Zaman, and on Israel with Ben Caspi. You can now watch our newest video podcast, Reading the Middle East with Gilles Capel. You can subscribe to these series on your favorite podcast platforms. And through a host of free daily and weekly newsletters, we offer a range of perspectives with the highest journalistic standards. You can subscribe to these newsletters at almonitor.com. As an award-winning media service headquartered in Washington, D.C., Almonitor has a network of over 160 contributors around the world. So if you haven't done so already, be sure to visit almonitor.com, where you can find all of these newsletters and podcasts, along with first-class reporting and analysis. Thanks to our guest, Abdulaziz El Sagar, and our production team of Beowulf Rockland and Rosabel Hine of Two Squared Media Productions. We will be back next week, and if you haven't done so, please sign up for all three of our podcasts at your favorite podcast platform. Reading the Middle East with Gilles Capel, and Gilles' guest this month is the legendary French architect Jean Nouvel, designer of the Institut de Monde Arabe, the Louvre Abu Dhabi, and many other amazing structures. Also on Israel with Ben Caspit, where Ben this week speaks with Colonel Alfer Haruvi about how unmanned aerial vehicles are changing modern battlefields. And of course, this podcast on the Middle East, where I will be here next week with another decision maker or thought leader from the region. Thank you all for listening, and please keep up with all of the news and trends in the Middle East at lmonitor.com. Thank you.